What up, everyone? This is Will Butler from Be My Eyes, and you're listening to Creator Exchange. Creator Exchange is a weekly series from The Outpost, bringing together creators and artists from different areas to discuss creativity, empathy, and the different ways we're all staying fruitful and optimistic during these times of uncertainty. The idea is to see the world through someone else's eyes. Today, we've got two amazing photographers, Christina Mittermeier and Danny Clinch. Christina's images demonstrate the important relationship between humans and the environment, diving into human cultures with a focus on indigenous people, ecological conservation, and biodiversity. Danny Clinch's work is more motorcycles, cars, and rock and roll. Specializing in the music space, Danny's iconic images have graced album and magazine covers, the pages of countless publications, and the two might seem sort of similar on the surface, but you'll find that they have quite different approaches to capturing their images and telling the stories of their subjects. This was a really fun one. It was cool to see not only the things that they totally agreed on, but the places where they diverged. We have a great lineup of conversations coming on Creator Exchange, so be sure to subscribe, review the podcast if you love it, and check out outposttrade.com slash creatorexchange for more info. Tune into our live conversations each week and give us your suggestions for what meeting of the minds you'd like to see on Creator Exchange. Want to do more than just create? You can start by supporting our friends at Oxfam, by donating to COVID relief. Find out more at outposttrade.com slash creator exchange. And you can also download Be My Eyes, which allows you to volunteer to lend your eyesight to those who need it. Today, we have almost 4 million volunteers lending their eyes on demand 24 hours a day to hundreds of thousands of blind and visually impaired people all around the world. Sign up as an individual or company by downloading the app or going to Be My Eyes. Dot com. Let's jump in. Here's my talk with Christina Mittermeier and Danny Clinch. Such a delight to be here. I've been excited all week. <laughs> yeah, I've seen the email threads going back and forth, and I'm like, hold off, guys, hold off. We're going to talk later this week. Like, that's the whole point, right? Uh, have you guys ever met before? No, but I, I, I think I didn't know so much about Danny as I knew about his work, which is a compliment, Danny. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Well, it, in the, for the sake of some introductions for those of those who are watching who may not have, have met both of you, um, Christina Mittermeier, you're, you're known uh, for your fabulous work with National Geographic. Um, you've gone on to establish your own organization, Sea Legacy, and, uh, and now have this new project, which we'll talk about, the Only One platform. Um, but how would you sum up in sort of a succinct way what it is that you love taking photographs of because most of my work really has to do with the environment science i realize is not the way to bring people in but photography opens a huge door to invite people into the most important conversation of our lives so that's why it's beautiful and and danny uh you know one of the i would say one of the most renowned and respected musical photographers of this time we're living in now, um, you've photographed everyone that, you know, from the, the list of the greats from Johnny Cash to Ray Charles, to, of course, Pearl Jam and others. Um, and you are a film director uh, and uh, just a musician yourself. 
Um, but when someone asks you at a party who might not recognize you, what do you do? What do you say? Well, uh, I say that I love music. Um, I've been using the phrase music is medicine a lot lately. Um, the idea that uh, music can be the soundtrack to your good times, to your rough times, helping you get through the rough times. I think that's that's what's really important uh, for me. And, you know, I've been a big fan of the document uh, as a photographer, documentary photography and filmmaking. And I feel like um, it's my opportunity to document history when it comes to music, um, you know, starting early uh, in hip hop. Um, in the early 90s, I photographed the Nas Ilmatic record, which is a legendary record. Um, I did Kanye West's first record, John Legend's first two, and a lot of other hip hop. I took a photograph of Tupac uh, that is pretty legendary that ended up on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine when he passed away. Um, and then I was able to, you know, go into photographing a lot of uh, my other musical heroes from Johnny Cash and Neil Young and Willie Nelson uh, and that sort of thing. And I would say that, you know, I'm fortunate that my through my my camera, I have these great life experiences. And that's one of the joys uh, to me are the people I meet and the experiences I get through my photography. You get starstruck. <laughs> starstruck? No, <laughs> come on. We'll get into that. But I think, um, you know, Christina, uh, a lot of people know all about your connection with our world's oceans and with the ocean and the sea in general. Um, but folks might not necessarily know your connection, Danny. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're located, where you're calling in from now today? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm on the Jersey Shore in New Jersey, uh, just below Asbury Park. Uh, I do live um, on a little cove just off of a river. And uh, I felt like when I first realized that Christina and I were going to have a conversation, I thought, oh, we have a couple of things in common. And it was funny. I bought up... Uh, you know, um, my love of the ocean and um, and the, and the artists that I know and love, like Jack Johnson and Eddie Vedder, Pearl Jam and that who love the ocean. And we seem to have a lot of mutual friends um, when she was like, oh, yes, I know Eddie and, and he's been so kind to me. And I was like, he's been kind to me, too. And, you know, <laughs> Jack Johnson and all that. So, um, yeah, so I, I grew up near the ocean. I I, uh, I'm literally seven minutes from the ocean here. Uh, I was a swimmer when I was in high school and therefore I was a lifeguard on the ocean when I was a kid and I have great respect for, uh, the, for the ocean and, um, I'm a bodyboarder. So I love to, uh, you know, surf in that way. And, and I can ride a line, a longboard as well, which I love. Uh, and, and my buddy and I, um, Tim Donnelly, HM Woolman and, uh, Tim Sweetwood started, uh, a music festival called See Here Now, which is on the beach in Asbury Park. And one of the things that I thought was I could brag about to Christina because she's doing all this great work for conservation is that we pride ourselves in um, in doing what's right uh, after having a show on the beach. And, um, you know, we partnered up with um, Surfrider. We partner up with Surfrider Foundation. Um, we have a uh, the C3, which is our production company, uh, has rock and recycle. Um, we think about the, you know, the green initiatives that we have. Um, and we, in fact, won 
the All at Once Sustainability Award for music festivals from Jack and Kim Johnson, um, who do the Kakua Festival and who are really involved in looking after uh, Mother Earth and the ocean there. And uh, so I felt like I would have something to share on the conservation tip because, uh, you know, Christina over there is just crushing it. <laughs> I am impressed. You're through? <laughs> yeah, we need a lot more Danny yeah. around the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you know, your, your work is just, it's so beautiful. And to be able to, I Thank think you. to be able to, um, to, you know, support conservation and through your art, I think what you said earlier, is just the perfect gateway for people to be drawn into, uh, the fact that, you know, look how beautiful this stuff is. And, and, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, it's not going to be here if we don't take care of it. You know, these yeah. photographs are going to be, um, really uh wrecking hopefully not <laughs> if they're um, no longer if we do our job right danny no well our children will enjoy them hopefully no awesome. but you're absolutely right i i don't remember a time in my life when i didn't care you know it was not something that occurred to me i've always had it inside me yeah. and i was been so surprised when people don't you know whenever a reporter says to me hey danny tell me why do you, why do you care about the environment <laughs> i'm like really you have to ask yeah. i mean it's uh it shouldn't be um it shouldn't be an option it should be something that we all feel very strongly sure. and that's that's all i wanted to do with my work you know i just wanted to infect <laughs> as we lived through a pandemic infect more people with the joy of nature and just you know understanding that we live in a very small planet nowhere else to go right um christina i wonder you know us humans we are productive creatures we're creative creatures we want to make stuff right and that's i think why we're so uh, this capitalism we're so obsessed with accumulating how do we balance our our desire to make and build and produce with uh the against the 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 fate of the environment that sometimes is is hurt by that it's a big question that's such an interesting question you know will and I, i've never heard that question articulated exactly in that way in, in the sense of the creative but it's it's true you know we are probably the most creative species on the planet and that's why we have been able to get a, a head on technology and you know all the tools that we have to make our lives better you spoke about capitalism and, and i think you know it seems like such a good idea and we've all grown to believe that that is the way that things should be I really challenge us to imagine a different type of capitalism that doesn't rely so much in accumulating and making more and you know growing an economy just for the sake of it. Because I feel like that current version of capitalism has really left humanity and nature both behind. And it's now in direct opposition to healing through this pandemic as well, right? Yeah, and there's a real danger that we're just gonna go back to that, you know, but you know, I know that all of us being at home stuck and I never want to forget the big thing that we all did together because we have demonstrated that when we put our minds and our hearts to something, we can actually create a huge difference. And people staying at home has reduced carbon emissions, has given animals a respite. And I, I hear the narrative that says, you know what? It didn't really matter that we all isolated at home. It was a big deal. It was a big sacrifice that we all did and we saved hundreds of thousands of lives by doing it. You know, I don't want to forget that. Yeah. We, we all sacrificed. 
Danny, um, you've worked with so many musicians over the past decades and become close with many of them. And some of them have also been like passionate activists and advocates. And in a world now where it's almost sort of cool to be uh, um, woke, you know, so to speak, or impact driven, um, and there's a lot of lip service paid to it. Who have you encountered uh, that is truly and deeply uh, passionate about a cause, whether it's the environment or something, something equally as important? Well, I think Jack Johnson's a good example. You know, the Kakua Festival and the F Kakua Foundation. Um, he's a guy who, you know, you can hear people talk about it, and there are a lot of people who are doing good. Don't get me wrong, and and, and I'll give you a list of those who who do. Uh, I look at him and I watch his Instagram and I see on Facebook and I see what he's doing and I've been to these events myself. Um, you know, he's actually on the, you know, in the field, you know, he's out there, he's pulling plastic off the beach, going on cruises in the ocean to uh, make films about plastic pollution. Um, he's, um, you know, educating children and bringing whole classes of schools out onto the beach to clean the beach and to educate them how to um, how to clean up and how to how to grow their own food. I mean, it's just really amazing. And I really admire him. And, you know, for me, it goes back to, um, you know, Pearl Jam is the same way. You know, they they did a couple of huge shows recently, um, the home shows and away shows that were um, the money went to help the homeless in Seattle uh, and really in America. And, uh, you know, it was incredible to see. And as a young man, uh, when I'm, I'm a Springsteen fan, of course, I'm from New Jersey, but I noticed, you know, Bruce Springsteen always standing up for what he believed in, always giving back to the community and giving back quietly. All these bands give back quiet, quietly. A lot of times you don't even know that they're giving back. Um, and, uh, and it's really inspiring to me. And, you know, I did a project with Dave Matthews Band recently and I was, um, you know, doing some research and I went on their website to see, um, you know, what they were contributing to the charities. It was like a hundred charities, more than a hundred. The list just, I just kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And, you know, even a little bit, you know, it's like, it's nice to give to one charity and really give a lot, but to really parse it out and, you know, you help a lot of people. Um, it's, it's really incredible. And, you know, um, you know, you think of, um, you know, Kelly Curtis, who's Pearl Jam's manager, uh, helping to create the Global Citizens concerts and create a ticketing system that gives back, you know, a dollar or two dollars from each ticket and, and, and encouraging all the artists that he works with and other and friends of theirs to give back, you know, a, a portion of their ticket sales to Global Citizens. And, all those initiatives and uh, and I have to say it's inspired me in a really big way and I have a gallery in Asbury Park called Transparent Gallery and um, you know we've been you know given this place hosted by iStar who owns the Asbury Hotel there and it, we saw an opportunity there to give back to the community and, and me being inspired by Pearl Jam, Dave Matthews, Foo Fighters, Bruce Springsteen on and on to what can I do? You know, what is it that I could do? And we hosted, you know, the Boys and Girls Club of Monmouth County and we, you know, small um, uh, charities that are um, doing well in the community. And we allowed them to have their fundraisers there and we would help on social media and we would raise money for this or do a, you know, be a drop off for uh, clothing drives and, and things like that. And 
are small things. And you know, like you can get overwhelmed with like what big thing can I do? But if you can even do a small thing, you know, even just, you know, ask your elderly neighbor at this point, you know, I'm going to the store, can mm -hmm. I get you something? I mean, we all have to start thinking that way. And, and uh, you know, I'm inspired by those people. I'm inspired by what Christine is doing. And I think that, you know, we all have to start thinking that way. You know what it comes down to, Will? Really, it's uh, asking yourself what my values are. And I think we all know, we all talk about our values. And then aligning your resources, the resources of your life, which is not just money. You know, your resources are intellectual, their compassion, their community, their time, energy, all of those things have to align with those values. And if at the end of the day, you're not contributing and giving back in accordance to those values, you start getting this huge sense of emptiness. And that emptiness is filled out with junk that we must buy to make ourselves feel better. And all of that, you know, feeling that sense of being enough enough to be able to give back is called enoughness you know and we've been practicing this last few weeks living with less because we had no choice and guess what it wasn't so bad you know yeah. we, can do, we can do a lot we can feel a lot better giving back than buying stuff yeah. christina i wonder about um marketing all this though because the irony here is that uh, a lot of what you talk about is actually marketing thing using the capitalism mm -hmm. to market the things that are going to help come back and help the world. So how do you make something as broad and kind of like sigh, like environmentalism, conservation, you know, like these these big scary things, how do you make them appealing to the average person? You know, it, it really starts, uh, and I've been, I'm gonna age myself by doing this, but I've been working in environmental stuff for 30 years now. And it took me a while to recognize what was happening, but I came to realize that if, if you look at the philanthropy input and in America is the most philanthropic country in the world. We Americans combined donate $420 billion a year to charity. It's remarkable. But of that money, 32% goes to religious institutions and then it goes to health, education, arts, humanities, all of it very important. At the bottom of the pyramid, 1.8% goes to a bucket called environment. And that includes all of the ocean, all of the rainforest, all of the species of life on earth, plus climate change and dogs, cats, and horses. So pretty clearly, if we care about saving our planet, we better start praying because the resources are simply not there. I mean, there's a huge misalignment in how we're allocating our resources to our values. And I started looking deeper into it and realizing that the big conservation organizations, the Sierra Clubs, all those environmental groups, whatever money they have, they only dedicate 4% of their overall budget to communications. And 90% of that is to do fundraising. So the message about how important our planet is, how this planetary you know, discipline of protecting the, the, our little spaceship that's carrying us through the universe, all of that got lost. If you talk to most people, they don't understand why biodiversity is important, you know, why having resilience in the system through diversity is what allows us to live here. And these are basic lessons that, you know, some of us learn them in school, but they're not taught anymore. So the ecology of being a human on planet Earth has been forgotten. And so I've kind of dedicated my life to making the, the pie that's dedicated to communications and marketing of that idea 
a little more robust. And I've done it through photography and through my relationships, but so much more needs to be done. Well, let, let's talk about photography because that's, you know, after, uh, after all, what you both are known for. Um, a photograph, you know, here I am, I'm legally blind, right? I, 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 don't, I don't see photographs the same way people do. And yet you've talked a lot about photos being a story. And I, and I wonder how is a photo more than just a photo? And I wanna hear from, from both of you guys on this and you, maybe you guys can compare notes about this a little bit. Christina, what's your initial reaction? You know, when I started my career as a photographer, I remember thinking, you know, there's certain images, like the one that you just showed me, Danny, of uh, Willie Nelson, you know, they become iconic symbols of our culture and of our times. And when I say to you, Che Guevara, I know exactly the photograph that you both are thinking about. And if I say napalm, Vietnam, I know exactly the photograph that you're thinking about. Photography has a way of, you know, you internalize it into your subconscious and it becomes part of your understanding of the world. Video is different because it comes through here and it leaves through there, but a photograph, you know, stays with you. Danny, what do you think? What, do you, what is, how is a photo more than just a, more than just a pretty thing to look at? Well, uh, I really loved um, Christina's explanation. That was great because it does, you think of certain images that represent that um, person or that moment. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's a moment in time. It's, it's a document, it's history uh, for me. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, I took the photographs, as I said earlier, for the Nas Illmatic record. It's one of the legendary hip hop records of all time. You know, I, I was young. I had never been to the projects before. I had gone to um, the Queensbridge projects to photograph him. He was very welcoming and uh, everybody there was super cool. Uh, they were, I think, excited to have a, a photographer there photographing their neighborhood hero. Um, the album was very cinematic and I, I really gravitated towards it and I felt like my style was really important to uh, and well suited to this story. I had never thought in a million years it would be one of the top five, top three hip hop records of all time. And that people would look at those photos and think, oh my Lord, like this is incredible. Did, you know, you know, and they're interpreting all this stuff about the image and that. And in fact, I wasn't, I didn't know at the time that it was going to be a really kind of a, a classic and le legendary image. So a photograph can be, you know, can age like a, a fine wine or you know depending on what that person does historically uh in the future whether it's good bad or indifferent um it changes the way you look at the photograph so mm -hmm. in a way you know filmmaking as christina said is storytelling and in its way you it's almost um it, it's different uh you have an opportunity to follow the story um, in a way that, you know, helps tell the story, uh, rolls out the story. With a photograph, you have to tell the entire story in that one photograph. You know, when I see that photograph of Willie Nelson that you just showed me, and it's mm -hmm. magnificent, I almost feel like it's Danny Clinch standing in the middle, and he's having a conversation with two different audiences. One is the subject, you know, and you're the interpreter, and on the other side of the bridge is all the people looking at that photograph. 
and it is it is a fluid movement of information that you interpret it for us. It's such a beautiful thing you do, Danny. Thank you. And, and I, I believe also it is open to interpretation of the viewer. It's like, what is your life experience going to tell you about that photograph? Mm -hmm. um, the lens with which you look at it, of course, yeah. Yeah. How, how has your life experience formed the way you're looking at a, a beautiful image of, um, you know, some wildlife, whether it's, uh, you know, maybe a, a polar bear or like a beautiful elephant, you know, as I see it. And if you're a hunter, you might look at it differently than someone like myself. And you look at it at the menu. <laughs> exactly. It's a good point. <laughs> so it's interesting, you know, everybody brings their own life experience. It's the same as a film and the same in a song. It's like, I, I hear people be asked that question, well, what did you mean by that, by that song? You know, and then, and then I hear them, I can hear it in their voice. They're like, you know, I'm not going to, they may not be saying this, but they're probably saying to themselves, I'm not going to tell you. Let your own life experience tell you what this right. song's about. Exactly. And we all interpret it to suit whatever emotion we need. So would you say, I mean, I always try to make my photographs a little bit of a bridge of empathy to the natural world. Mm -hmm. Just to, to, to create relationships through those images that remind us of our relationships as humans. And I'm not trying to anthropomorphize, you know, I'm just trying to build a relationship. Mm -hmm. I, not know, one of the notes I made to my own self when you say that, you know, the empathy that you show in your photographs and the respect mm -hmm. that you show your subjects is what I admire a lot about your photographs, Christina, is like everything you photograph, you do it with respect. It's like the women series, the children, the wildlife, even the landscapes, you know, like everything sort of has like this it's respect and there's even humor in it and like um you know it's uh it's it's but something some, that I but something you just myself. said something you just said about working in the projects and you know photographing the, the hero of that place mm -hmm. in such an important way danny is about returning dignity and power to people that have been marginalized and disempowered and mm -hmm. ignored you know and saying look at it through my eyes and see how important and beautiful it looks and people start seeing themselves in a different way. It's a magical thing that happens. Mm -hmm. it, it's really interesting to think about uh, celebrities and musicians who we adore as marginalized or, <laughs> I, no, no, I'm not saying you saying that, but I'm just thinking, I'm just musing here. Like Danny, you've, you've said before, you photograph wildlife in a sense. Yeah, um, I wonder, is it important for us to have empathy for celebrities? I mean, I think everyone deserves empathy. And, you know, it's like, I, I think they, you know, you can certainly, there's an exception to every rule and someone can act a certain way and maybe they don't deserve it. Uh, but I, from my point of view, they do. I mean, um, I tend to, I'm a photographer who likes to show people in their best, most soulful light. And I think there are other photographers who I admire, like Avedon, for example, like an Avedon portrait. He wasn't always looking for the beauty. He was sometimes looking for the utmost ugliness of a, of a portrait. And um, and I appreciate those portraits. I, I don't, it's not my approach often, uh, you know, and there's always an exception to the rule. But um, just thought I'd point that out, that everybody has a different sensibility as to how they're portraying their subjects. I like respect and empathy, and I want to capture a moment that really reveals something that's soulful and it feels like you actually might get to know him a little bit even a celebrity humanity you know fellow yeah. human 
Yeah. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I meant by marginalized. You know, a lot of celebrities come from, you know, less than less than affluent communities, you know, they rise because of their talent, but I love it, especially when celebrities go back to where they came from to give back. Do you ever photograph, do you ever find yourself seeking out the, the ugliness of nature or what we've done to nature um, in, in your work to, to show that side of it as opposed to showing empathy? You know, I, I do it and I, I think I tend to overdo it. You know, I, I just don't show ugly. I show you the starving polar bear, you know, and I get sucked into the viral vortex of the ugly internet. But uh, absolutely, you know, one of my favorite storytellers is Dr. Martin Luther King. And when you hear his most famous speech, of course, I have a dream. He, he doesn't start by saying I have a nightmare. He takes you through this vision that he has. He articulates an idea of a better planet. And I try to do the same with my photographs. You know, I try to show what our planet should and could look like. But then Dr. King reminds us of what it is like today and all the work that we have ahead of us to make it better and bright. And at key inflection moments, he takes it back to just how ugly and perilous and dangerous it is. And I try to do that with my narrative. Um, uh, it's a very careful balance of saying, you know, it's hopeful, it's beautiful, but that's not all I see. I also see this other side. I, I post a photograph um, of uh, the bush meat markets in Africa, you know, a man that's roasting uh, a, man a mandrel, you know, looks very much like a human child. It's horrible, you know, and my followers get upset with me because I'm showing them, you know, the ugly side of the work I do. And I feel like we have to see it, you know. It's not fair for us to recoil from the horror. We have to share it. I mean, and that's Susan Sontag. I don't know if you ever met her, Danny, but Susan wrote about, you know, the pain of others. And it's our responsibility to share a little bit of that. But you have to do it with a dropper. Yeah. Dropper. I like that. Mm -hmm. uh, something you said, Christina, reminded me of a, a, something I saw of you on stage once admitting um, what you felt in your life was a massive failure. Oh, yeah. This, this, this trip you took to the Amazon. And I wonder if you could just briefly tell us about that failure, but also talk about admitting failure in general. And I'd like to hear from Danny on this too. Yeah, Danny will, you know, you'll, you'll understand this feeling, you know, when you're a new photographer and you have this huge imposter syndrome, you know, you don't understand how this opportunity has been given to you. And I was sent to the Amazon on my first expedition solo to photograph this village that was going to be heavily impacted by a dam. So my job you know, is no different than Danny's. You go into a community and you try to bring a little piece of the humanity to help people understand that we're not just talking a, a, a wall of cement. We're talking about families and mothers who are not educated and whatever. And I was super nervous. So I was making the, the easy, cheesy, super easy portraits, you know. <laughs> trying to just you know come back with something that my editors could look like could, could look at when one afternoon I saw these women coming up from the river and one of them had a brand new baby and I thought oh isn't that amazing you know they're probably coming from the river where this baby just took its first bath and it was probably part of an important ritual where you know a baby is you know becomes one with the river and where was I you know I missed the whole thing you know such a newbie I had no idea what I was doing so I was starting to make a plan and thinking, okay, in the morning, I'm going to go find her and I'm going to fix this. You know, I'm going to ask her to give the baby another bath and I'll photograph it and that'll be the end of it. But in the morning when we woke up, you know, I, as I started asking around, they said to me, well, no, the baby died. It didn't live through the night. 
And I was so upset, you know, and when I remember this, it, it really embarrasses me because I was not so upset about the baby dying. I was upset about my own failure as a photographer, mm -hmm. like, oh my God, you know, and by the time I realized what was happening, they, the baby had already been buried and I had missed that too. And at this moment, I'm starting to think, you know, why did I come here? You know, they should have sent somebody who knows how to do this better than I can. I'm going to let everybody down and this dam is going to be built and it's going to be my fault. And I'm having this conversation internally when I see somebody coming towards me and it's the mother of the baby and she's bawling, she's screaming and she has a machete in her hand and she's hitting her head and there's blood coming out and she's covered in mud. As she comes closer to me, I see that she has her baby in her arms. And this poor woman, you know, in her sorrow had dug out the baby from its grave and was cradling it around. And that's when it hit me, you know, I was a young mother as well. And I thought about my children at home. And I stood there with my camera paralyzed, not knowing what to do. And I just didn't want to impose on her, Danny. I didn't want to put my camera on her face. Mm. And I didn't take any pictures. And, you know, it's a big failure because you are sent down to do a job. And as you become more mature photographer and you understand these challenges, you are better equipped to deal with them emotionally to actually do the job. Mm -hmm. But I was so young, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, well... You live and learn, you know, it's uh, you make your mistakes and you try not to make them again. Yeah, because I thought, you know, I, I thought about the photograph of the napalm, you know, that changed the conversation about Vietnam. Yeah. And I thought if I had taken that photograph of this woman, maybe it would have made it to the newspaper. I don't know. You know, mm -hmm. maybe we could have sparked some controversy that would have shifted the conversation. Yeah. And I, I didn't want, have I want to know why admit that failure on stage? Um, and why is it important for us as creative people to admit our failures? I think especially young people today, they glorify their achievements without admitting their failures. And it's all part of the journey of both being a human and being an artist. And Danny will tell you more than I will that being a, a successful photographer is all about failure. 99% of the time things do not work like we want it. You know, it's that 1% that really counts. Mm -hmm. But the better stories in the 99 Danny, does anything come to mind? Uh, I mean, do, do you get what percentage of your photography do you think are successes and, and, and how do you cope with failure? Well, um, or do you have a different viewpoint on it? You know? Yeah. I'm, you know, f for me, I mean, that's, that's a, uh, a moment that Christina had that's, you know, life in rock and roll pales in comparison <laughs> to that. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, my, it, what, what it brings to me and in, in my, uh, my mind is in, as part of this discussion, which I think if we're talking to younger photographers and we're talking to people about like, what is it that, um, you can do, uh, how do you handle yourself in that situation, etc. cetera. Um, I think about the phrase like sink or swim. And uh, it's, a, it's a phrase that I've heard a bunch, um, but recently it just sort of like, it, it reminded me of the first time I got to photograph like Bob Dylan, you know? And I'm sitting there and I'm like, first of all, is he gonna show up? And when he does show up, am I prepared? Here's a guy who's been photographed by 
the all of my heroes <laughs> you know you think of david gar and and uh barry feinstein and you know annie leibovitz etc and you know what what's my impact going to be on him and uh you know i think that you just have to let your instincts take over you know and um i think even my early assignments like one of my first assignments for spin magazine was photographing uh this hip-hop band called third base and i went down there and i said to myself am i going to do this or am i not like i think i'm going to know by the end of this shoot you know does this photograph is if this is successful it's gonna it's gonna look like it belongs in that magazine and you know i just at a certain point you have to stop overthinking it and get to the task of taking the photograph and um and so it is kind of a sink or swim situation you know you're there you make it till you make it baby yeah I, i like i just dove in and i ended up getting a photograph i was really proud of for the third base story and and the Bob Dylan uh, thing worked out great. I, I I made a really wise decision in the um, the fact that I chose this location uh, called the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, and there was a lot of history behind it. It was um, uh, where Robert Kennedy was assassinated in the kitchen there, and where um, the Coconut Grove room was there. It was where the Rat Pack used to hang out, and like Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and Sinatra and all these guys, and and they. Um, you know, Dylan was super excited about the history of this place. And so he, you know, I didn't realize, but quickly I realized how important it was to him to be in such a cool place. And instead of getting him for like three hours, he stayed for like six hours. So, oh, wow. <laughs> but, you know, um, I, I think it's, it is a, a matter of, um, you know, of trusting yourself and, and, uh, you know, I, I keep thinking back to the image that you feel that you missed there. And, and it's like, it really is, uh, I can imagine that weighing heavily on you for, for quite some time. Um, and, but sometimes, uh, sometimes I feel also, because the work that we do is different, right? So when you're shooting in the field, I have very little control of the circumstances. But when I decided to tell that story well, I was thinking, I don't have the photograph, but if I can paint the picture by telling the story and allow people to imagine it, perhaps mm -hmm. it's even more powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's, um, it's, well, and I want to talk about the tools we use to tell those stories. Um, you kind of alluded to it. Danny, because you talked about location, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes tools are not as simple as, oh, my tool is my camera, right? But but what are the tools that that you would say, if you had to pick your most important tool, that's not just a camera, um, or mm. what, what, what would you say it might be? And whichever one of you has an idea first can jump in. You know, when I started my career, I wanted to be a wildlife photographer because I love animals. And when I started hanging out with famous photographers and going to all these nature photography conferences, you hang out with people with like Franz Lanting or Art Wolf or Tom Mangelson, and you realize the sacrifice it takes to take those pictures, you know? Weeks, months in a tent somewhere in the Arctic alone, mosquitoes, you know? And I, I thought, you know, I think I'm more interested in the place where humans and nature meet. And I started taking indigenous people's photographs. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered my most important tool, and that is that I really like being with people and that I really have a sense of humanity. 
And so I was able to go in without judgment. And sometimes you spend a week hanging out with people before the camera even comes out. So it's that ability to become part of a community that has been the most important tool. That's that's uh, that's interesting because in a sense I'm doing the same thing, right? I'm going into um, you know a backstage area with a band or you know where I, there's all these different personalities. You don't know what kind of day they had, uh, you know all those sort sort of things, and and you kind of get to a point where you know you you want to be able to. Uh, show respect and and not cross the line, but you don't want to be so passive that you miss an opportunity because you haven't been aggressive enough. And the uh, the, the important tool that I that I have again is like is not the camera. It's the fact that you know I grew up in a household. My mother and father, uh, they. Um, they treated everybody equally. My dad would you know always say uh, you know. I talked to the garbage man and I would talk to the president, you know, and I would treat them the same way. I'm not treating this person different than that person. And he's actually, he actually said that often when I was a kid growing up, you know, you, they, they would never were judgmental. You know, my father, funny enough, was also the guy like, you know, you'd go to a wedding or you'd be at a gathering somewhere and there'd be like one sort of crazy ass person that's mm -hmm. there and everybody's kind of like, there's like they're just kind of keeping away i'm not going near that guy my dad would like you know settle up next to him and go hey man what's going on you know, he wants to know what this madman is up to yeah. um, almost like a sixth sense right to have that yeah. sense for yeah so i guess so you know like I, I feel like i give people respect and like when you're talking to someone that you admire so much like a bob dylan or a bruce springsteen or uh you know anyone for that matter uh even someone who's not famous you know you you kind of don't want to you don't want to you know you want to i, I want to treat them like a regular person or find our common ground and show them certainly respect but uh i think you know a lot of people are just like get frightened uh in a way where they can't act themselves mm -hmm. So, and then you see, I feel like I'm, I'm able to, you know, to go into one of those situations and still just be myself and, you know, show respect and find our common ground and take some photos. <laughs> My dad used to say stuff like that too. <laughs> People can sense when, when, when you're like, when you're putting on airs, right? Yeah. They just have a, a feeling like there's something not quite right. A lack of authenticity, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and then and then it really does reflect in what they're giving you back, you know. I've seen some photographs of you know artists that I gotten to know, um, and I've seen the I've seen everything's great about the, the the lights really good, you know the composition's nice, like he's you know they're dressed cool, and you could just see in the eyes like there's just like there's a disconnect there that doesn't it doesn't seal the deal of a of a really great photograph. Yeah. I think I think all that stuff to me, uh, what's important in a photograph is the moment and the emotion and soul of it. Like I'll sacrifice lighting and composition uh, for emotion you know, every for day. Yeah. yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. I want to go back in time a little bit and ask about mentors and and people you learn from because I know Danny, you. Um, I want to. I don't know so much from your perspective, Christina, but Danny, I know you were. You started out interning or something for for Annie Leibovitz, right? Yeah, yeah. I was. What did you, uh, you learn from Annie? Well, um, 
I learned a lot from her. Uh, she she wasn't one to chat up her assistants, chat people up. She always came in. She was on a mission. She was like not talking to anybody. She'd just go in and she was really, really obsessed with what she wanted to do. And I'm that way too. I have a different approach to it, but we're all, we all have our own approach. But like, you know, it showed me how important it was to just be really kind of like, and I knew I was as obsessed with my work as it looked like she was, but uh, she never took no for an answer. She was always going for what she wanted to do and she never settled, you know? And I really liked that about her and I learned a lot from her in that way. And she was also really wonderful with people and getting them to relax and the poses she put them in and all those things. And, you know, as a, as a, as a photographer, every, I, I, I really worked with a lot of really wonderful people. I worked with Annie, I worked with Stephen Mizell, uh, I worked Mary Ellen Mark, um, I love Mary Ellen. Yeah, me too. Um, uh, Timothy White. And, um, and, and like a lot of these people, I, I took what I felt suited my personality from them. You know, initially, like I wanted to be Annie Leibovitz and I realized, well, I'm never going to be Annie, you know? And so I took what I loved about her work and I brought it with me and I took what I learned from Stephen Mizell and I, I brought that with me and Timothy and I brought that with me and I just little parts and they all just became, you know, who I who I have become and who I am. And um, I think that's the way to do it. You have to realize as a young photographer looking for my style, I was always struggling. What's my style? And then I realized, well, I like Tri-X black and white film. I like this 28 millimeter lens on this old Nikon. And I like being in the middle of stuff. I need to be right in the middle of it. I love music. I like cars. I like rock and roll, motorcycles. All of a sudden I'm like, oh, yeah, there's my style. You, know, <laughs> if you want someone to shoot some rock and roll and you know, if you want someone to shoot Bruce Springsteen on a motorcycle, I'm your guy. Yeah, oh, but, uh, you know that my assistant now, a young man named uh, John Kelsey, was Annie Leibovitz's assistant too. So, oh, wow. <laughs> and now he works for me. So, oh, wow. that is re re really good wow. recommendation. Uh, but no, I, I learned in a different way uh, because the thing that I do is kind of unique, you know, and, and there really wasn't a school for photographers doing environmental or conservation work. So, the closest thing I had was uh, nature photography and wildlife photography. And I would go to these conferences where photographers gathered uh, to try to express my concern for nature and the environment. And I would raise my hand and say, hey, you know, could we use our pictures to try to protect these places where we photograph? And it was pretty much a patriarchy, you know, it's a bunch of middle-aged white men. <laughs> and I was pretty much told to sit down and shut up, you know, it's like, no, that's not what we do here, dear. <laughs> so I started my own organization. but. Mentors along the way, when, when you become part of the National Geographic family, every single one of those photographers becomes your family. So people like Joel Sartori taught me so much about the business end of things. You know, how do you show up to work and you only get paid when you show up to work? How do you invoice? How do you keep your hours? I mean, these are things that you don't learn in school. Uh, how do you make a submission? How do you create a portfolio? How do you write a letter to an editor? You know, all these things are the little bits that get you closer. And then from other photographers, uh, Paul Nicklin, uh, who I ended up living with now, he was the first one to teach me underwater photography. I started taking pictures of animals, moved on to indigenous people, and then Paul put a housing in my hands. And it's a, it's a big set of skills that you need to be successful to take photographs underwater. Number one of which is, you know, 
do not drown. <laughs> try, try to keep breathing. But on top of that, you know, the current is taking you, you're sinking, the water is cold or whatever, and you have to create an exposure and frame it and have a composition. So really difficult. But other photographers, people like Patricio Robles Hill in Mexico, taught me how to use images as tools in the environmental toolkit. So lots of mentors along the way, and I try to give back in the same way today. You know, I often mentor, especially young women, because I don't know where it comes from, but there's a big, a big obstacle in the way that women think about technology as a very threatening thing. Cameras are too complicated. It's not for me, or it's too dangerous to go out there, or, you know, it's just not the way that women are raised. So how do we eliminate that conversation to say, hey, anybody can do this? Yeah, I was going to ask, that was going to be my next question about how do we, how do we make room now that we've had all these great mentors and we've been unable to benefit from all this success? How do we make room for people who are on the outside and just feeling like, well, there's like you feeling like you were feeling when you raised your hand at those conferences in the very beginning. And you've kind of answered that a little bit, but I'd love to hear both of your perspectives on that as well. Can you rephrase the question for me? Well, just sort of in terms of how, like, how do you, have you, have you, have, you know, how do, how do we think about outsiders to our profession and people who might not feel like they have outside. The painful thing, I mean, we all wear there, you know, when you're the one sitting outside and wondering if that's ever going to be you. Right. Right. Do you have, do you, do you have sort of younger folks who, how do you teach people the craft or do you hope that people learn by watching or is it, is it a combination of things? Um, well, I, um, I love sharing what I've learned with people. And, uh, I think, you know, I used to, as a young photographer, be, you know, jealous and, uh, you know, of other people and the work that they were doing and, and that, and, you know, at this point I realized that, and, and, and I think most everybody at that age usually does, you know, um, but I think now, you know, just sharing and showing support for people is important. And I think that, um, you know, I think about uh, Instagram and, and, you know, how you can share information on social media and that's cool. And I, and I think I, my take on Instagram, people often ask me, you know, like, well, do you like Instagram? You know, now everybody thinks they're a photographer and, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, I, I love, I, I've always loved walking down the street wherever I am, whether it's New York City or in another country. And, you know, just, I was always so grateful that I could really just appreciate like a, a you know, some light coming, you know, through a window or a shadow on the ground or just like the theater of life as you cruise down the street. And I felt like a lot of people didn't really, there were, there were rare people who appreciated that and got to know it. And I think with, with Instagram and the fact uh, that people are starting to look at the world in a different way because they want to post a cool photo on Instagram. And, you know, maybe it's, you know, hipped a couple of people to say, actually, I have a good eye and I really enjoy this and I can, I can make a career out of it or even just I can have fun and make a strong hobby out of it, you know. And the beauty of photography, as we know, uh, is you could you could love wildlife and conservation. You could love rock and roll. You could love weddings. You could love, you know, food or still lives or whatever. And you can uh, be obsessed by that stuff and make it your career and do something that you really love. Yeah, I completely agree with Danny. And uh, 
I, I try to mentor people, but you know, one at a time doesn't really get us, you know, move us very fast. So I do a lot of lecturing and I try to do a lot of webinars and I don't teach photography. I mean, like the nuts and bolts of the camera and the composition, you know, that's the easy part. It's the vision that you bring to the craft that's really difficult to understand when you're young. So I, I remember I, I gave a lecture recently and a young Japanese woman came up to me afterwards and she touched my chest and she said to me, Ikigai. And I didn't know what it was, so I looked it up. And Ikigai is a Japanese word that means finding your life's purpose. And you find it when you make a list of things that you love. And it's the confluence of four things, you know, the things that you're really good at, which are also the things that you love to do. And these are the things that you get paid, I mean, that are going to make you some money. And these are the things that the world needs. And the confluence of all those fours is your Ikigai. And photography is such a big, vast discipline, right? You know, when you're a beginning photographer, your first camera, you want to be a street photographer. You want to make money and do commercial work. You want to go photograph celebrities. And, you know, oh my God, there's a polar bear. If you have some discipline in making these lists of things, you know, you'll find where your unique brand of photography lives. And it's a painful career if you're trying to build a business from it. So you better be enthusiastic and passionate and excited every morning when you get out of bed to go and do this thing that you love and that you're really good at because otherwise you're not going to get paid <laughs> and you're not going to change the world so there you go find your ikigai mm -hmm. i like that i love that i've always i've always i always say that any of my greatest mentors anyone who who has made the biggest difference for me would never presume to call themselves a mentor <laughs> right like and those are the those are the great ones, you know. <laughs> like the better ones for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, little nuggets of things you've learned along the way, you know. I want to I want to talk about affecting people in mass, and I'm also checking to the time and to make sure we don't have any uh, desperately nagging questions in the comments. But um, uh, but I think uh, I want to know a little bit about the the only one platform. And what and the elevator pitch for that and why someone who just casually thinks, yeah, I care about the environment should should go and join. Yeah. Uh, when Paul and I started Sea uh, Legacy, our nonprofit, it was really just a desire to do more. And we were working for National Geographic at the time. And it just felt like you work for two years on an, an article for the magazine. It appears there for a month and then it's gone and nothing really happens. And so we created Sea Legacy because we wanted to do more. And in the beginning, the only tool we had was our social media. So we started growing it and posting stories, you know? And it was like a scene out of Forrest Gump when he starts running across the country, you know, and he looks behind them and there's millions of people following him. Well, we knew we had found a way to communicate that was striking a chord with people and they were coming for the stories. But then we thought, you know, we could probably activate these people to take action together. And I was inspired by the Arab Spring, you know, that was a Twitter storm that brought Mubarak down. And I thought, if you can, you know, create a passionate story that gets galvanized action on a single issue, you can mobilize a lot of people. So we started building a technology tool. And I wanted it to be led with storytelling. So with beautiful video stories, writing photography. But imagine that you're watching your favorite Netflix show and you're really invested in the character. And at that moment, you're given an opportunity to take an action. You know, you can help this person or you can help this animal. So that's what we're building. Oh, wow. the, the only one platform is a, a, 
I like to think about it as a marriage between Netflix, Netflix and change.org. Uh, it's in the service to the ocean community. So we're hoping to tell the stories of many ocean conservation groups, especially the smaller ones, and to give people that are watching this content opportunities to take action and to know that, that they're part of a very big community of other people who are taking the same action because that peer validation is really important to move the environmental needle. So only dot one is going to be launched at the end of, Ju of June. It starts with Sea Legacy, but there's going to be many other conservation organizations telling their stories there and giving people who are not even close to the ocean an opportunity to take significant actions every day. Wonderful. Uh, only dot one. Wonderful. And, and Danny, you're just in terms of the projects that are on your mind, you're continuing to run your festivals, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you have a new book out, I think, as well, right? Well, I have a book out. It's been out for a while, but uh, it's called Still Moving. And it was. Um, let's see uh, it, Danny. Yeah, right. let's, let's see it. Take a picture of you with your book. This oh, yeah. Screenshot. Right <laughs> so beautiful. So beautiful. Still Moving. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Tom Waits on the back. I'll show you my book. Oh, yeah. Man, I love that book. <laughs> yeah, good. Oh, guys. I'm going to send you a copy of my book, and I want a copy of yours, Danny. Absolutely. Yeah. Deal. Don't we have we we uh, we're almost at, at at time here, but we oh sorry, Danny, were you going to say something? One other thing. I just wanted to shout out Paul Nicklin for getting having the cover of the new Pearl Jam record, Gigaton. Uh, <laughs> what an album! Oh my gosh, so good. Yeah, so good. Yeah, Maybe and thank it's in rock and roll. I don't know. I might have to come over your to your side and shoot some wildlife. We would love that, Danny. But that is exactly the perfect confluence of uh, creative, uh, purposeful people coming all together in a single yes. conversation, which is also mm -hmm. the most important conversation of our life. So yeah. I could see uh, Jeff Ament and Ed and Stone and Mike and, uh, uh, and Matt, like, you know, these guys really, I, I, I'm sure they saw that photograph and, and realized how perfect it was for the record that they made and what they stand for. Yeah, exactly. What they stand for. They are their values aligned with their compassion, oh, yeah. their resources. So yeah. good. Guys, this has been such a, a awesome conversation. Thanks for spending the time with us this afternoon. Of course. It's been amazing. And Danny Clinch, I'm your biggest fan. So excited to be here with you today. Likewise, I really appreciate your work and I, I look forward to uh the, the book trade. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. Yeah. <laughs>